uh, as we come to our message this morning. Lord Jesus, we want to hear from you. We've sang it a couple different ways. Uh, now we put it into practice. We, we want to continue to hear from you this morning, Lord Jesus. So would you come and would you speak? Would you impress things on our hearts? May this not just be some good words. May this not just be something where we leave going, oh yeah, I need to try that. Uh, but truly, may we leave this place impressed upon by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we have been praying for this time and we pray now again, may you come and have your way. You are welcome here. We are your people. This is your time. Come and speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are now on our third week uh, talking about our spiritual disciplines. Uh, basically, the big boy and big girl steps if you actually want to follow Jesus. If anyone ever told you following Jesus is easy, you just pray this prayer and then don't worry about it till you die, they lied to you. Following Jesus takes work. It takes discipline. Uh, there are things that we have to do if we're serious about growing in our faith. There are certain steps or practices that we really have to learn uh, to make a part of our walk, a part of our everyday life, if we're truly going to grow into the people that God has called us to be. And so for the past, this is now week number three, uh, we've been walking through uh, the spiritual disciplines, uh, kind of following the guidelines set uh, in this book called Celebration of Disciplines by Richard Foster. Most of these thoughts here are not original to me, or actually any of them. Uh, many of them I'm going to quote uh, Richard Foster and, and some others, as well as looking at, at the scripture. Uh, but these are not new ways. These are not brand new things. These are ancient, like some of them thousands of years old ways of practicing what it means to follow the Lord, to become like the Lord. And so we've looked at, uh, Foster breaks it down into kind of three categories. There's our inward disciplines. Chris, if you'd put those up there for me. Study, the, the way that we approach the word of God. To study it, to have the mind of Christ, the word says. Meditation is that kind of inward application. What does that look like in my life? Lord, how are you going to do what you say you're going to do in my life today? And this is a very practical application piece. Prayer, conversation with the Lord, and fasting. Intentionally saying no to some of the appetites we have. Because one of the most important lessons Christians need to learn is just because I have the appetite doesn't need I meat, I need to feed it. Yes? Everything we want is not what we need. And disciplining ourselves to learn that. And fasting is a, is a great practice to teach us that. Then there's the outward disciplines, the ones that, that people actually can see us practice. Go ahead and throw those up there for me, Chris. Simplicity. Not necessarily just about having less stuff, but about making sure you live a life where your stuff isn't getting in the way of your pursuit of God that we're not getting distracted by pursuing the things that the world has, living intentionally simpler lives so that we can focus on what's truly most important. Solitude and silence, learning to pull away from uh, what author Jordan Rayner calls the kingdom of noise to find a place of silence where we can actually hear from the Lord, where we can actually grow, where we can apply some of those inward disciplines it doesn't happen on accident, and it doesn't happen as you're just running at breakneck pace. We have to have those intentional times of solitude and silence to allow the Lord to minister to us. Submission, learning that what I want is not the most important thing. It is not my kingdom. I am not the king. 
You and I are brothers and sisters, equals under one king. And we're called to submit not only to him, but also in love to submit to one another. And so practicing this, I don't have to get my way. There's a a tyranny, a bondage that comes from living life as if you have to get your way every time. It's not what we're meant for. And so practicing this discipline of submission and finally service. Philippians 2 says, have the same attitude as Christ who considered others better than himself and he made himself a slave to serve. Was Jesus actually less than us? No, a million times. No, he's our king. Yet to show us what it looked like to love in his kingdom, he became our servant. And then he said, now you go and do likewise. Serve one another and people will see the kingdom being lived out. So we have to practice this discipline of service. What we're going to look at this week is called the corporate disciplines, the ones that we practice when we actually all get together. And what I have been saying with the disciplines each week coming up to it is wait until we're done with the series to pick a discipline to work on. This is the last week, and so today at the end of this, I'm going to challenge you, which one is the Lord calling you to put into practice? But notice I keep using the word one. We tend to come at it as going, okay, I got to try all of these and I got to get really good at them by this next month. And so I'm going to do nothing but all of these things. And we burn out and it doesn't work. Pick one. And for the next six months, for the next year, whatever it is, focus on this one discipline until it becomes just a natural part of what you do. Then maybe look at taking on a second, but start slow. Take what feels like a, a too small step. Because by doing that, you actually have a chance at accomplishing it, at making it part of your normal life, and then add another step. Go slow. Walk before you can, nope, crawl before you can walk. Yeah, that works. So go slow, and also find someone who's further along than you in that discipline. Find someone who you have prayed with, and maybe it was just like kind of an offhanded thing, but as they were praying, you were going, whoa, like I want to pray like that. And go to them and say, hey, will you teach me to pray like you? This is all meant to be done in the context of discipleship. Us linking arms together and walking through this together. I have intentionally been as brief as I know how to be on these and not giving a ton of, so go home and do this and do this and do this, because I don't want to rob you. I'm kind of just giving commercials, and I want you, if you feel like you have to go further, I want you to go, okay, but what's the next step? Because it forces you, if you're serious about it, find someone. Find someone who's further along, even if it's one step further along in that path, and go, will you teach me what you know? Show me how you began to do this, because I want to learn. This is how we're meant to grow in these things. Does this make sense, church? Third time you've heard it. You understand it? Okay. So let's get to these corporate disciplines. The first one, these are fun, confession. Most of us love confession. We can't wait to tell on ourselves and air our dirty laundry The discipline of confession is integral to who we are as the people of God. Foster starts talking like this. He says, at the heart of God is the desire to give and to forgive. Because of this, he set into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross runs something like this. People were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless someone big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. Sometimes we can have this spin of we go like, God was just so frustrated with us that he went, fine, I'll send my son. I'm just tired of dealing with this almost type mentality. But really what it was is God is love. He cannot turn it off. We find that in, in 1 John 4 that God is love. It is who he is to forgive, to, to try to move back toward you in relationship, to try to make a way so that you can come to him is who he is. It wasn't out of anger or frustration, but by his love, he chose to make a way for you to come to him. He chose to make a way for you to find forgiveness. But a piece of that forgiveness is confession. Whether when you prayed the sinner's prayer, when you were a young child, or whenever you came to Christ, part of your confession was, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. I don't deserve what you offer me, but I take it. But man, thank you for giving it to me. But part of our coming to him is confession. The thing that some of us are in the habit of doing, though, is leaving it back there. No, it's okay, I already confessed to Jesus when I prayed that sinner's prayer or whatever it looked like when I came to faith. But it's meant to be a recurring part of who we are. Because how many of you, the last time you sinned was before you knew Jesus? Any hands in the air? Me neither. We continue to sin against each other, against the Lord. We, we, we go our own way. We're selfish. We're, we we uh, act out of anger and rashness, whatever it may be. We continue to sin and we need to continue in the practice of confession. 1 John 1.9, we know this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love the, the absoluteness that John writes about. Does it say, you know, if we confess our sins, there's a good chance he'll forgive you. Does it say, like, man, as long as you've been trying really hard. It says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. He will. It's a promise. Forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So any of you that are paying attention right now might be going, well, then why is this in the corporate disciplines? That sounds like something between me and Jesus, right? I go to him. I confess my sins. He is faithful and just. He forgives my sins and purifies me. Why is this in the corporate disciplines? There's a an old way of thinking in the high church and in like the Catholic church and some of these where you need to go to the priest. You confess your sins to him. He then runs to Jesus, confesses your sins for you. Jesus says, it's okay, I forgive them. Then the priest runs back to you and goes, okay, he forgives you, it's okay. And there's this thing where we have to go through somebody. We have to confess our sins to, to, to that priest or whoever that is or else it doesn't count. That is not what we find in the scripture and that's not what I'm talking about here. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He says we don't need anyone to be our go-between. We already have a go-between. That's what that mediator means. Someone who's on our side going for us, that's Jesus. And we have direct access to him, a direct line to him. Amen? We don't need a go-between. But yet we find something different described in Scripture. Just before 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. Just before that, he says this, 
If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, check this, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. And then he goes on to say that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Excuse me, John, I, I think you said it wrong. It's supposed to be if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, right? But he says, look, it's an allscape. This is, we're all in this together. We're to come together and walk in the light with one another so that you can have fellowship with one another. This is not meant to be something that you just go and you do privately and no one else ever knows and whoo, we escaped it, we dodged the bullet. But we're actually called to walk in the light with one another so that we can have deep fellowship with one another and so have fellowship with him. This is actually meant to be a corporate, it's both. It is a private thing where we confess our sins to the Lord privately, but there's also a corporate aspect to it. Not because you going to Jesus isn't good enough. You have to have a priest in there. That's not what he's talking about. But the body was created to come together, to be one, and to walk in the light with one another. In James 5, he says this, Is any one of you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We know this one. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Your sins will be forgiven, so confess to one another. The scripture doesn't let us just make this a private in my own closet kind of thing. It keeps bringing it out. There's a place for corporate confession, for us to confess our sins to another person. Jesus takes this and he amplifies it. He turns it up to 11. When he says this to his disciples, one of the last things he says to them, he's already uh, risen from the dead and he's kind of walking with them for a time before he goes to heaven. And he, Jesus said, the, uh, said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. The, the mission that the Father sent me to be on, now I send you to be on. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Did Jesus just tell his disciples they have authority to forgive sin? Wait, 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 wait. But that's just a Jesus thing, right? Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you on the same mission that I am. And I came so that people could understand, could live in the forgiveness of their sins. And now I'm giving you the authority to help them live out the forgiveness of their sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, says this, Our brother has been given to us to help us. He hears the confession of our sins in Christ's stead, and he forgives our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secret of our confession as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I am going to God. If that doesn't strike you as, whoa, he just said something like real. When I go to my brother, I go to God. That we have been given the same ministry of Jesus to hear someone's confession and to tell them, you are forgiven. We don't need a priest, again, to, to hear our confession. And it, it kind of almost didn't count unless it went to that priest. 
But at the same time, we have all been called, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called a royal priesthood. You have been given the authority and actually the command to represent Jesus to people. Those who don't know him yet should look at you and go, that's what Jesus is like. That's one of his priests, his representatives. Those who do walk with him may need you to come in and to speak authoritatively the words of Jesus to them. You are forgiven. Foster says, the person who has known forgiveness and release from persistent nagging habits of sin through private confession should rejoice greatly in the evidence of God's mercy. If you have just gone to the Lord and said, Lord, I sinned, please forgive me. And, and you felt this release from your sin. You felt the lifting of your guilt and shame. Praise the Lord. But there are others for whom this has not happened. Let me describe what it's like. We have prayed, even begged for forgiveness. And though we hope we have been forgiven, we sense no release. We doubt our forgiveness and despair at our confession. We fear that perhaps we have made the confession only to ourselves and not to God. The haunting sorrows and hurts of the past have not been healed. We try to convince ourselves that God forgives only the sin. He does not heal the memory. But deep within our being, we know there must be something more. God has given us our brothers and sisters to stand in Christ's stead and makes God's presence and forgiveness real to us. If you have been able to go to the Lord and go, hey, Lord, uh, yesterday I did this thing, or, or maybe, man, last year I'm still praying for forgiveness because it was a big thing, and I have to keep bringing it back to him and keep bringing it back to him, but I still feel guilty. I still feel that weight on my shoulders. That is what your brothers and sisters are for, to confess your sin to them, for them to have the authority and the power to say, you have been forgiven by the Most High God. This is not yours to carry anymore. What a ministry we have to one another. Most of us can understand what he's talking about. I keep asking for forgiveness for the same thing because it feels like it just didn't take. And to bring our brothers and sisters in. And if you're one of the ones being confessed to, to understand you have a role to play in that moment. Not just to hear and go, it's okay. Boy, that's, that's hard. Sure, give them a pat on the back. But what they need from you is the authority of the word that says you have been forgiven. Because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. And sometimes we just need someone flesh and blood sitting right in front of us to tell us that truth. You will not experience that if you refuse to confess your sins, if, if guilt and shame is holding you back. We have been called corporately to confession so that we can live free from the bondage of guilt and shame as a body. As I, every time I think through this, I go, but Jesus, that, it seems like you're adding extra steps. Wouldn't it just be more proficient if we came to you and you waved a magic wand every time? Like, wouldn't that just work a little better? Jesus is not here for what's the most proficient. He has called us to need one another, to minister to one another. And I think there's times where he goes, I've given you the truth, but I actually want you to go to them so that they can minister to you and you can learn what it is to minister to each other. And so I think there's times when we can know the truth, I've been forgiven, but God kind of withholds his hand 
and goes, until you bring some others in and the body starts acting like the body, you're not going to experience release from this. He has designed us to need one another. In this, we're knit together. And that is the point. So the first, corporate discipline, confession. The second one, worship. To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. It is a breaking into the Shekinah of God, or better yet, being invaded by the Shekinah of God. Uh, That word Shekinah is a fun one. Uh, It's a Hebrew word. Basically, if you think back, if you know the story of Moses and the tabernacle, whenever God's presence would be in there, the place would just be like on fire, like glowing. There was this glory of God radiating out. That was called the Shekinah. When Moses would actually go into the presence of God, everyone else kind of stayed back because it was too much. When Moses would boldly enter in and he'd leave, what would happen with his face? His face was legitimately glowing in the dark, like light bulb, glow in the dark. He had been in the presence of God and now he was radiating the Shekinah glory back to people. And what Foster is saying here is that in worship, it's like breaking into the Shekinah of God, and I love it. Or better yet, being invaded by the Shekinah. When we come together to lift up praises to our God, his presence, his glory is meant to invade our space. I want that. Do you want that? Like, that is what worship offers us opportunity to do. Not just sing some songs, no, I hope I like this one, but to go, God, invade this place. We are going to sing your praise until we know that you are here. Worship is a natural response to an encounter with the divine. When we have an experience with Jesus, the only logical response is worship. Thank you, you are so lifted high. Who could do this but you? And whatever it might look like. In Romans chapter one, therefore I urge you brothers, excuse me, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, like you've just experienced the mercy of God, now offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. You have just seen the mercies of God. You have just experienced the mercy of God. The only proper response is worship. And worship that involves your entire being. Foster says, in our day, the church of Jesus Christ is coming into greater awareness of how central praise is in bringing us into worship. What a a beautiful gift it is to be able to praise, to sing together, and how this kind of aligns our hearts with the Lord, we're able to kind of fully worship as we come into praise. In praise, we see how totally the emotions need to be brought into the act of worship. Worship that is solely cerebral is an aberration. Feelings are a legitimate part of the human personality and should be employed in worship. To make such a statement doesn't mean that our worship should do violence to our rational faculties, but it does mean that our rational faculties alone are inadequate. He says a lot there, let me break it down a little bit. This is not just an intellectual thing. To worship the Lord is not just to say the right thing. It's not just to sing the right song. Okay, good, this song has good theology. We can sing that one. Like, that's a piece of it. I I, I love that he says, it should never do violence to our intellectual mind or our rational faculties. It's not like we should sing things we don't believe because they just make us feel good. Never that. But how often do we sing and it's simply just words? It's simply just checking, yep, that's the right thing to sing, but there's no emotional connection. 
To experience the Lord and to think that we wouldn't be touched in our emotions is to miss it. He ministers to the whole being and every single one of us have emotions and and those should be touched by God. Those should be brought to the front in worship. I'm going to read through some stuff here and I never want anyone to feel guilty about how they worship. I never want anyone to feel like it has to look like this or someone else is judging them in their worship. But Chris, can you put up the um, chorus to the first song that we sang? Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with... To to actually sing it like you believe it, you have to shout his name. To to, to sing this and not actually stop and think about the skies filling with his praises. Does he deserve that? So, So take the time... What would that even begin to look like, God? How many people would it take worshiping you for the skies to be filled? We have to engage our imagination and our emotions in our worship. It is not an intellectual endeavor alone. Chris, put up the the next chorus for me, if you would. Chris didn't know I was doing this, so he's jumping through some hoops back there. Woo, Woo, way to go, Chris. He loves that, by the way. The chorus to the next song, not the next slide. I mean, we shout your name. We, we sang it. We should do it. Hallelujah. The, this word, like it's a, it's a Hebrew word that doesn't even really have a translation because it just meant the highest praise anyone could ever give ever. It was just this, we don't have a word to say, but we, there's got to be something. And so they just created hallelujah. Holy, holy God almighty, the great I am. He's worthy. There's none beside him. Hallelujah, holy, holy, God almighty. Like, it doesn't work. We can't do it. I love my wife. How many of you in here are married? Okay, try this sometime, maybe later. It'll be fun to start a fight. Go home and tell your significant other, you mean more to me than anything else. I'm so thankful for everything you do. Uh, Couldn't do it without you. You're the best. Try it like that. See how well that goes. They will not be extending roses uh, to that because they're going to look at that and go, you don't mean what you're singing. Like you, the, you're doing this because you feel like it's the right thing to do. We would never do it with another person, but yet we treat God like that all the time. I'm just going to tell him the right thing and kind of go through the motions because I just don't feel like it today. Because ah, this isn't my favorite song because whatever... There's an old saying, there are only two times to worship, when you feel like it and when you don't. And when you don't is when you need to worship the most. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what's natural for you. There is an audience of one that we sing to. And and sometimes we forget he's present in the room. We're actually singing our worship to him. And it's not as if he was right here. He is. And how do we treat him sometimes? Hallelujah. Holy, holy. How much longer is this going to go? He's in the room. Actually, like this is where the discipline comes in. To imagine that you're singing to his face. If it's not awkward when you worship, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Have Have any of you ever serenaded someone? 
like from with Tim saying it, a couple of our musicians actually have. I'm gonna tell you something you may not recognize if you've done it before. It's super awkward. When someone just looks you in the eye and sings a song to you, it is awkward. And it should be because he is present and we're singing to him. And if you never get that sense of, this kind of feels a little crazy, you might be doing it wrong. And that's, that's probably strong to say doing it wrong. But we should have those experiences of going, man, like his presence is so real to me right now. It's weird that like I'm just singing right to his face. I have a good friend. He's a super awkward dude. He leads worship and he would say, look Jesus right in the eyeballs and sing him this song as if he's right here. And he'll tell you, man, it should be the most awkward thing you do today. And that's fantastic because it's recognizing his presence. Foster goes on to say, we are to present our bodies to God in a posture consistent with the inner spirit of worship. Standing, clapping, dancing, lifting hands, lifting heads. Our posture is consistent with the spirit of praise. To sit still looking dour is simply not appropriate for praise. Kneeling, bowing the head, lying prostrate, our posture is consistent with the spirit of adoration and humility. We're quick to object to this line of teaching. People have different temperaments, we argue. That may appeal to the emotional types, but I'm naturally quiet and reserved. It isn't the kind of worship that will meet my need. What we must see is the real question in worship is not what will meet my need. The real question is what kind of worship does God call for? It is clear that God calls for wholehearted worship. And it is as reasonable to expect wholehearted worship to be physical as to expect it to be cerebral. Often our reserved temperament is little more than fear of what others will think of us, or perhaps unwillingness to humble ourselves before God and others. Of course, people will have different temperaments, but that must never keep us from worshiping with our whole being. There's a really good practice that we've done here a couple times, not on a Sunday morning, but in some of our other gatherings, where we actually just go through from Psalm 95 to Psalm 100, and every time there's a command, we do what it says. Does anybody know what kind of commands are in the Psalms? Shout to the Lord. Make a new song. Make a new song. Whoo. Clap your hands. Bow down before the Lord, your God, your maker. There's all of these different commands. And that same friend who told me, sing to Jesus in the eyeballs, he led me through this one time with a group of other people. He said, for a half an hour, we're just going to, if you get done with it, start over. And every time there's a command, do what it says. Shout to the Lord. That's in verse one. You can't even make it one verse. And I'm just going, oh Lord, I'm not a shouter. I don't really do this. And he was going, I didn't say if you're a shouter. I said, shout to the Lord. It's the kind of worship I want from you, the Lord was saying to me. And I did not have a leg to stand on with, I'm not comfortable with that. He's the king. And if the king says, this is what I want, it's my job to give it to the king to withhold worship because it's, I'm just not comfortable is to rob the king. Now, I, again, I don't want anyone to feel guilty here. I am not looking and judging. I'm not gonna tell you unless you raise your hand X amount of times throughout a service or nothing like that. We're not even gonna do a song to close the service today because I don't want this to be that thing of like, okay, now let's see who is listening. <laughs> this, this, this is not that. You may notice when, when I lead worship, I'm here with you. I refuse to turn and look at any of you because if we make eye contact, it gets weird. 
And all of a sudden, many of you are like, oh, wait, he's told us not to stand like this before. And like, it's not about me. It's not about what I like. It's not about what anyone else likes. Are you offering wholehearted worship to the Lord? Are you free to do it? If not, what is holding you back? Deal with it. Offer the Lord wholehearted worship that he desires, not you. The next discipline, the discipline of guidance. Foster says, we've received excellent instruction on how God leads us through scripture and through reason and through circumstances and through the promptings of the spirit upon the individual heart. We've had some excellent teachings on how these things work. There have also been teaching, good teaching, on the exceptional means of God's guidance. Angels, visions, dreams, signs, and more. But we have heard little about how God leads through his people, the body of Christ. On that subject, there has been profound silence. Perhaps the preoccupation with private guidance in Western cultures is the product of their emphasis on individualism. The people of God have not always been so. God desires to speak to us in different ways when we're gathered than he will when we're alone. You've heard me teach on this and actually pray this passage many times in Matthew 18. Jesus speaking, he says, Again, I assure you, if two on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there among you. Isn't he there anyway? Like God's omnipresent, right? Which means everywhere all at once. So why would he need to tell us where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there? Because he's there in a different way, in a new and in a profound way when we gather together to seek him. If any of you agree about any matter that you pray for, that meant they came together not agreeing and they prayed and went, Lord, what is your will? And they were seeking the will of God. And when they came to a point of agreement, we collectively feel like this is what the Lord is saying. It will be done for them by their father in heaven. How many of us don't see answers to prayers because we keep going it alone? When God says, look, if you gather together and you agree, like not just, okay, we emailed beforehand and we all said, this is what we're going to pray for. But we came in going, Lord, you teach us. What is it? And we all get that sense of this is what the Lord's calling us to pray for. He says, now you can pray boldly and your father in heaven will answer that prayer because where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be among them. Foster, speaking of that passage, says, in those words, Jesus gave his disciples both assurance and authority. There was assurance that when people genuinely gathered in his name, his will could be discerned. The superintending spirit would utilize the checks and balances of different believers to ensure that when their hearts were in unity, they were in rhythm with the heartbeat of the Father. Assured that they had heard the voice of the true shepherd, they were able to pray and act with authority. Check this out. His will plus their unity equaled authority. We hear about praying in the name of Jesus and and praying authoritatively, and there's been some bad teaching on that. And some of us kind of sweep the whole thing under the rug because of it. But what Jesus has just told his disciples is that when you come together and seek my will together and and there's unity among you, there's agreement among you that this is what we feel like God is saying, his will plus their unity equaled authority. They could have assurance that God would answer that prayer because they had come together and they had heard the voice of Jesus together. Now they prayed in authority and they saw what God did. We see this played out multiple times in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, it's all over the place. One of the clearest is in Acts chapter 13. 
in the church that was in Antioch, there was a prophet, and there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, some of those personal disciplines put together, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then after they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So they were together having a prayer meeting, going, God, what is your will for our church? And they were just praying and fasting, listening for the Lord. And they felt the Lord said, set aside Barnabas and Saul. And so they didn't just run off then and go, bye guys. Like, what did they do? They prayed and they fasted more. Why were they praying and fasting more? Lord, is this really from you? Would you confirm it? They would pray and they would fast and they would go, I feel like we're supposed to send Barnabas and Saul on their way. What, what did you guys hear? I heard the same thing. Yeah, no, that, something just resonates in me when you guys say that. Like, I think that's what the Lord is saying. And so they said, okay, we've been commanded by God to send them out. And we see the entire uh, pagan world turned on its head because these men prayed together, sought the will of God. And when they heard it, they acted with authority. And God moved, man, in incredible ways that are still having rippling effects on the earth today. And we see this played out again in Acts chapter 15 and in the calling of Timothy, as Paul describes it. The people of God were in the habit of going, me praying by myself isn't enough. Let's us gather together. And when we find unity, when there's agreement that this is what the Lord is saying, we're going to pray boldly and we're going to act authoritatively. And they saw God do miraculous things. Corporate guidance is more than just putting something onto the prayer chain. The prayer chain has its place. But it is not the same as going, hey, will you pray for me? It's this idea of going, will you pray with me? Will you seek the will of the Lord with me so that we can agree together and we can move in power and authority? This should be happening in our church in large gatherings and in small gatherings. This is something uh, that the leadership groups of the church, our, our governing board, our elders, some other leadership groups that get together, we're starting to implement this and going, first of all, for me, it was repentance of going, Lord, forgive us for the times that we just got together and did the best we could figure out without ever really spending much time going, let's sit and pray and listen for the Lord together. Let's discern his will together and then go do that. We've been busy going, here's what we think is best. Lord, would you bless it? And so we're deciding to start changing those things. As I look at some of our small groups and prayer groups, again, instead of just, hey, this is going on in my life, would you pray for me? This is going on. I don't know what to do. Would you pray with me? And let's not leave this place until we've heard from the Lord. Let's not move on until we understand what the will of God is and we can move in authority. Does this make sense, church? The final Discipline should be an easy one, but man, it's tough for us. Celebration. Celebration is at the heart of the way of Christ. He entered the world on a high note of jubilation. I bring good news of great joy, cried the angel, which shall come to all people. He left the world bequeathing his joy to the disciples. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The church, the core tenets of the church, the things that, man, we disagree on all these other things, but the things the church has always had in common are celebrations. Baptism is a celebration of what God has done. At baptism, there should be singing and applause and a party that happens because one declares, I will follow Christ at all costs. 
and we're told to celebrate it for thousands of years now. Communion is meant to be a celebration. It used to be a whole meal. We've kind of shortened it some, but for many, it's become far too somber. Oh, what the Lord has done, and I'm so thankful, and there's a place for that. We start our communion, but what do we do once we allow the Lord to examine our hearts? What's the next thing we do? We sing, and then we take communion, and then what do we do? We sing. Communion is meant to be a celebration, not just this, oh, Lord, thou art great for what thou hast done, but God, you did this for me. I have no alternative but to celebrate it, but to gather my friends and family and to sing your praise because I cannot even imagine what you have done. There is a celebration the church is called to that we've lost. Far and away, the most important benefit of celebration, Foster says, is that it saves us from taking ourselves too seriously. Amen. Amen. This is a desperately needed grace for all those who earnestly seek, uh, who, who are earnest about spiritual disciplines. It is an occupational hazard of devout folk to become stuffy bores. This should not be. Of all people, we should be the most free, alive, interesting. Celebration adds a note of gaiety, festivity, hilarity to our lives. After all, Jesus rejoiced so fully in life that he was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. Many of us lead such sour lives that we cannot possibly be accused of such things. I, got, I told Kim I get to use the word wine-bibber today. Uh, she said it sounds kind of like a lobster-bibber, uh, how somebody just eats lobster so crazy they need a bib that maybe people were accusing Jesus of being so sloppy with it, which they were, actually. They called him a drunk. But it's because what was Jesus in the constant habit of doing? Going to the people he shouldn't go to, the, the prostitutes and the sinners, that's what they said, that he shouldn't go to, and having parties. And they would celebrate what God was doing. And it was in the midst of these parties that then the, the tax collectors were going, you know what, if I've wronged anyone, I'm giving it back fourfold. And we saw these incredible transformations happen, not at church services, not at the synagogue, but in these celebrations. This is, and, and it drove the religious establishment crazy. Who does this guy think he is? Jesus was constantly celebrating. We take ourselves too seriously. I love it. It's an occupational hazard of devout folk to become stuffy bores. We need to learn to celebrate. A couple teachings that we're familiar with that oftentimes we miss the celebration in. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three different uh, opportunities for it. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost until he finds it? We, we know that part and we like it. Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one because he's all business. And that's what he does. He came with a purpose and he doesn't have time to waste with anything else. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. What was Jesus saying the natural response to, to seeing the work of God should be? Celebration. And here's the thing, when they would celebrate, most likely when this guy would call people together to have a party and a celebration, do you know what they'd eat? Sheep. He, he probably lost another one. And we go, whoa, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. The point is to have a hundred, right? And he's like, no, I, I have a mission and I've been called to do it, but there is so much joy 
in carrying out the mission of God, I can't help but celebrate, even though sometimes it's not even going to make sense. He goes right on from there. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. He's all about finding the lost sheep, finding the lost coin. When she finds it, she calls her woman friends together. Uh, this translation had to put women friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So in that day, when you called your friends together to party with you, who footed the bill? It wasn't a potluck. You did. So guess what it cost that lady? Probably more than a silver coin to celebrate finding the silver coin that she found. But it is such a part of the people of God. We can't help but rejoice, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it may even look inappropriate at the times. We have to celebrate. Next comes the story of the prodigal son. Jesus just hit these bang, 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 back to each other, trying to show the mission of God and the response of God's people to the mission of God. We know the story of the prodigal son. The son comes to the father and says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And he was the younger son, so he got a third of everything. He goes off, he squanders it, and he comes to his senses and goes, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Even my father's servants live better than I do now. I'll go back and I'll grovel before him and I'll, I'll say, just take me back and make me one of your slaves. But as he comes up, the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Where is the celebration with the people of God? I struggle with this one horribly. Celebrating doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I'm kind of the, okay, let's get back to work kind of thing. And she's not in here, so I'll use her as an example. Shirley is incredible at celebrating. I, I tell people she's got the gift of party planning. And I'm not joking about that. She is fantastic at celebrating to the point where it frustrates me because I go, you're wasting time. Stop celebrating and just move on. And then every time I go to one of her celebrations, I go, she gets it more than I do. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not how I'm wired. It's not... Where's the right point in that? Here's the thing. I've gotten better at celebrating birthdays. I don't think I'll ever be okay with birthday weeks. It's too much, okay? Your mom didn't push you out for a week. You don't need to take a whole week. Every year, a week, like, it's too much. It's 2% of your entire year. But, it's true. But here's the point. I'm good with the day where we need to be, probably somewhere between me and Shirley. <laughs> and even closer to her end, I'll give her that. Like, and I'm using Shirley, I didn't even talk to her about this, but I'm sure she's fine. But we need to be stretched in this. Celebration is at the heart of God's people. Most of the world looks at us and they see judgmental, stuffy bores who always have to be right, who, whatever it may be. They don't look at us and go, those people know how to party. Because who has more to celebrate than us? We have been given life that we didn't deserve or earn, but it was poured out on us. Who should be better at celebrating than us? But who is better at celebrating than us? Pretty much everyone. It's a discipline to become good at celebrating. And it's a discipline worth chasing after. 
So Foster says this, so poke fun at yourself, enjoy wholesome jokes and clever puns, relish good comedy, learn to laugh. It is a discipline to be mastered. Let go of the everlasting burden of always needing to sound profound. That's the right response. Let go. Be silly. Again, there's a, there's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. We have just so minimized it. And going, there is life-giving ministry when we gather together to laugh, when we celebrate, when we're silly, when we, we don't take ourselves so seriously, we can poke fun at ourselves. We don't even have to be profound and have the right theological answer. We can just be overjoyed because of what we've been given. It is a discipline to be mastered. So the question for you now is what discipline will you choose to work on over the next few months? Pick one and start small, but what discipline is the Lord calling you to lean into? If you're like me, you go, obviously it's celebration because that's the last one I heard. All of these are online. If you need to go back and listen again, I have emailed out a link to this book because again, I've given commercials. If you really want to take a step You're going to need some other people with you. You're going to need to do some of your own learning and growing in these areas. But which discipline is the Lord calling you into? What step are you going to take? And who's further along in that journey that you need to go tap on the shoulder and say, hey, can I just have some of your time? Maybe it's over one coffee. Maybe you go, hey, can we, over the next couple weeks, just get together a couple times? I need what you have. Which discipline are you going to grow in? Which one is the Lord calling you into? Take a step. Again, this is big boy and big girl stuff. You cannot grow in your relationship with Christ without employing disciplines. And this isn't all of them. This is some of them. But it takes work. Which step is he calling you to take as we go into this next season? Take small bites, but start moving forward. Lord Jesus, we want to take our walk with you seriously. Not just doing what comes naturally, but God, just as we had to learn to love our spouses, just as we have to learn to love friends well, may we be diligent to learn to love you well, uh, to grow in areas where uh, we're lacking, to, to take intentional steps so that we can see you in new ways so that we can hear you and experience you in new ways, so that your kingdom can be advanced and moved forward. May we take the long view of this, Lord Jesus. It will be difficult now, but man, the fruit that is to be gained. Would you continue uh, to shift our focus this way? Would you remind us of the commitment that we make even here today? May we be your people, walking in the ways that you've set before us, that the world would see and grow jealous of us, God, I pray in your name. Amen.